Bibles to Micah chapter 2. It's found on page 819 in your pew Bible. And then we will read from Micah chapter 5 those very familiar words related to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. First, we read Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Micah 2, 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. And then turning a few pages over to chapter 5, page 821, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, open this scripture to our understandings and let us treasure Jesus. He came one time and he's coming again in glory. O oh Lord, let us treasure who he is and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace is one of the most familiar promises of the Advent and the Christmas season ranging from the affirmation in our scripture reading this morning, verse 5 of chapter 5, and this one shall be peace, ranging also to the song of the angels, that night in which Jesus was born, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And even from the passage from which I read this morning for the call to worship, in chapter 9 of Isaiah. Peace is something that we want as an ongoing state of well-being in our lives. 
And the word translated peace here in chapter 5, verse 5 of Micah, is the familiar sounding shalom, which means safe, well, happy. And a word picture which helps me with it is the fact that as you're making a jigsaw puzzle over the holidays, perhaps, everything needs to fit together as a whole. And the picture that's coming out of it usually is a beautiful picture of something pastoral or something like a war scene. I remember one of uh, Washington crossing the Delaware. And for me, that is a, 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 a stirring inspiration, the price that uh, our forebears paid to fight for liberty and to be peaceable in their home, that they would not have to bear with King George's troops banging down the door of their house, but they could have a security and a peace. That is a very holistic word here in the Hebrew of life fitted together rightly. Another word picture I want to give to you is a poem written by uh, Mrs. Uh, Miss Corey Temboom, the tapestry poem. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Part of gaining peace this Advent season and this year is leaving the choice to him. And we may think that's just too painful. You know, I got to be in charge. But can we leave the choice to him like Corey Ten Boom did? She lost her city, her sister Betsy, in a Nazi concentration camp. Her sister died of anemia, pernicious anemia, and was very poorly treated there, persecuted by a particularly wicked prison guard. And yet Cory Ten Boom was ready to leave her life, and the eventual picture of its beauty as a, as a weaving looked at from the top left that to the Lord. I want you to know peace this Advent season. I want you to know this peace for the rest of your life. Let's look at it from Micah 5, 1 and 2. The one whose goings are from old was born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 3, 2 and 12 and 13. The shepherd king born of a woman brings a uniting peace. And finally, Micah 5, 4 through 6, the shepherd king rules and feeds his flock for their peace. 
So first, the one whose goings are from old was born in Bethlehem. A key to gaining peace is having the confidence that we have a sovereign king who reigns and who has complete awareness of the needs of his subjects. That that has wisdom, and it's a wisdom that's commensurate with the breadth of his authority and the extent of his power. And he knows the needs of his subjects so as to care for them. And that's the picture we get here in Micah. He's mentioned to be a ruler in Israel. And he is one who feeds his flock in verse 4. In brief, we need a relationship with this ruler, this shepherd, if we are going to have peace and trust that everything that's happening to us has a purpose in God's eternal plan, even if we don't understand it now. We read in verse 2, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We may take such a view of God's omniscience that, yeah, he knows everything, that we would think it was unnecessary for Jesus to actually enter into our world in order to understand it. He had to enter into our world to become human, to bear the extent of the wrath of God upon humanity, but he also needed to enter in to understand it completely. That's what the word says, Hebrew 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it, and he gets it from the inside. The point of that verse is he is an insider to your temptation. He knows what it means to resist temptation to the very end and how difficult it is. We can have peace in the greatest trials of our life, knowing that he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a little place. It's little among the thousands of Judah. And one of the reasons that we sometimes doubt our God and have a wonder about where is our peace is we wonder, does anybody see what I'm going through? Does anybody see my financial struggle, my spiritual struggle, my relational grief, my physical sickness? But there he is coming forth from the littlest of Judah. And that shows us he sees the little things in our life. He is the Lord of the great and the small. It says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He sees it all. His eyes are running to and fro upon your hearts today as you hear this message. He gets it about you. And the question is, do we get him? Are we loyal to him? Do we get it when it means his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting? That's a description of the eternal son's eternal 
generation from the Father, that the Father begets the Son forever. Think of the eternal emanation of light beams from the Son as a comparison. The second person of the Trinity is the communicative, ever-reaching out person of the Trinity. We read in Deuteronomy 8, we can read in Deuteronomy 8, 3, these words that were made familiar by Jesus' quotation of them when he was tempted by Satan. We read in Deuteronomy 8, 3, he humbled you that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That proceeding is the same Hebrew word as the goings forth there in Micah 5, 2. It's the word which speaks of a going out, matzah. And that going out happened even before there was a creation. It was a going forth of the image of God and that image of God was a perfectly reflected in the person of the Son. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, 3. The Son was the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of the Father. And then after there was a creation, we read in that same verse, 1, 3 of Hebrews, that the Son upheld all things by the word of his power, when he had purged him, when he himself purged our sins, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the eternal son, and now the incarnate eternal God in the person of Jesus ascended, has been forever and will be forever going forth from the father. And this one was born in Bethlehem and is watching over you today. Interestingly, this one who is ever going forth from the Father, when he was incarnate, look at verse 2 there, yet out of you shall come forth to me. He's eternally begotten by the Father coming out of him, but then when he's born, he's coming forth out of the woman to the Father which means that he was there on earth for the Father's purposes. He's there on earth to do what the Father sent him to do, which is to die on Calvary's tree and be raised from the dead for our justification. Let us affirm with our heart what our head hears in this verse. He, the ruler of Israel, is truly in charge. He is the eternal God. He has all power. And in the weaving of the tapestry of your life, in the weaving of the tapestry of your life, he knows what he's doing. The Jews, as Matthew Henry pointed out, deny that this text about the ruler could possibly apply to Jesus because they say, well, he was no ruler in Israel because we basically killed him. And they deny the resurrection. But Jesus anticipated this by saying in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual rule now that will become 
an absolutely public rule at the last day. It is a spiritual rule, and he is in charge of all things now, but he didn't have to be accepted by the Jews as the king of Israel to be the king. Jesus rules in our hearts by his grace and his Holy Spirit, and Jesus rules in his church by the preaching of his word and the celebration of his sacraments. And at the second coming of Christ, he will bring all in rebellion to account by his mighty kingly power. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Sometimes it's the dark threads which are needful to be a contrast to the gold and silver. Even the dark threads that carry sometimes the stain of sin, the stain of our sin, or the stain of someone else's sin. Without making God the author of evil in the least, we understand that God's decree, his eternal purpose, comprehends and uses both good and evil alike for the accomplishment of his purpose to be glorified in the redemption of his people. As Betsy Ten Boom put it once, quoted by Corey Ten Boom there in a Nazi concentration camp, these two sisters from the Netherlands, Betsy wrote, if God has shown us bad times ahead, it's enough for me to, that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things, you know, to tell us that this too is in his hands. Betsy and Corey and their father could see bad times coming with the mistreatment of the Jews. And they resolved to be on the side of God and to be those who assisted the Jews and helped them. You, in the midst of bad times, you may see bad times coming. You may see portents of stuff that's not right. You can be a golden thread in the midst of darkness. Come and believe in Christ. Don't give up. Someone really loves you. Don't give up. Someone really cares. Don't give up. Someone really loves you. And that someone is the Lord. That's that one, the one to be ruler of Israel. And second, Micah 5, 3, and then going back to chapter 2. The shepherd king, born of a woman, brings a uniting peace. We read in verse 3 that one aspect of our sanctification parallels the work of God in his people in space and time. We are called to wait upon the Lord in our sanctification. There is faith that waits upon God. And that waiting was also true in the space and time revelation of the Messiah. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. God gave them up. It was almost like that silent four centuries between Malachi and Jesus. There was no more prophecy. There was just waiting and waiting and feeding on the word of God that was already revealed. And we see one like 
Simeon, who waited in the temple. And he was not consoled until he saw Jesus. Luke 2.29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. When he had that baby Jesus placed in his arms, when they were making the sacrifice regarding the firstborn in the temple, he held Jesus and he was consoled. Because he had seen that salvation, a salvation which was going to Jew and Gentile alike, as he said. And so this waiting in space and time and the events of salvation history is a waiting that we need to do. We need to wait on God and trust him in very difficult times. Going back to chapter 2 now, verses 12 and 13, we see... That God is gathering the remnant of Israel, verse 12. And he's going to put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They'll make a loud noise because of so many people. You see this scene where these sheep are there in a fold and then there's a breaker. Someone who opens the gate and removes a rock which may contain the sheep in the fold. That breaker is thought by many to be John the Baptist because he broke through the hardness of the wickedness of that age in which Jesus was born and he called the people to repentance. And calling them to repentance, Jesus was able to walk through and apply the balm of healing of the gospel of grace in his death and his resurrection. And when I was up in Scotland, I would see the sheep covering the road sometimes when I was driving along on a single track road and I had to wait for the sheep to go on and all it would take often was for the shepherd to go ahead of them and to lead them and they would just move and rush en masse out of the road and that's the picture we have here of braying uh, no, they don't bray bleeding sheep bleeding sheep and they're making a loud noise and then they break out and they pass through the gate and they go out by it their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. God is doing a work to make a flock that is united. And the nature of that united flock is that, as we see now going back to chapter 5, verse 3, that the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. God's salvation always includes Israel. It is not a salvation where Israel is somehow put over here and has this type of salvation. Israel also is saved by faith in the coming of Messiah. But we, the Gentiles, who are, are returning to the appropriate vehicle of salvation, which is the church, and that church now incorporates Jew and Gentile alike, that Jewish people are like the olive tree, and we are engrafted into their roots. And so there's a time of unity here. There's a time of coming together. It's a dangerous time we live in, and one of the dangers is pride. In the context of chapter 2 and 5 is, is the sin of Israel. And we see in chapter 2 uh, that there is a, a lot of sin which is going on, and 
And there is, uh, uh, in verse 3, an example of it. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. We live in an evil time, my brothers and sisters. And it's, a lot of it has to do with the spiritual pride of, of Christians and it has to do with the wicked, uh, unbelieving pride of the world that they would seek to repress Christianity. Pride, whether it comes from Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs or whether it comes from the proud Herod who was struck down in the book of Acts when, when, when people said of him, this is the voice of a God and not a man, and he was struck down in that minute. Whatever way that pride appears, we need to humble ourselves and be corrected by the Lord. And we need to wait on this shepherd king who is the one who is caring for his flock. He is the ruler of Israel and he is the one who is going to lead them even into his eternal kingdom. And so now we come to the third and final point. The shepherd king rules and feeds his flock for their peace. Micah 5, 4 through 6. And it says here, He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. We can have peace as we trust in a God who is weaving the tapestry of our life, who is truly God and all-powerful. He will get it right. We can have peace with our fellow believers because he is bringing us together in unity as the remnant of his brethren. But we also have a peace here when we recognize that the king has been raised from the dead. He shall stand. This is a standing up from the grave in which he was placed after his crucifixion. Last week we saw in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3 and verse 9, that there were nail holes and spear holes of his crucifixion, and they are called the, the engravings on the stone. Zechariah 3, verse 9. These engravings were the scrapings and the incisions and the spear hole that, that killed our Savior. And he was marked up, and it says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. It's in the one day of Good Friday when Jesus was crucified that that happened. But here we learn of the next phase of salvation history. Verse 4, he shall stand. As John Gill puts it, he has an alacrity to perform his office as king. It is done in the strength of the Lord, in his own strength as a divine person which is the same as the strength of Jehovah. It's the power and strength dispensed to him as a mediator with his good news. And he sets shepherds over them. He is the shepherd, and yet he sets shepherds over them, the under-shepherds of ruling and teaching elders. And God's intent, Christ's intent, is to protect us from all our enemies 
to look after what is lost or driven away, to heal the sick, strengthen the weak, bind up the broken, and watch over his flock continually. And there is a prediction here. They shall abide. They shall abide. That means to rest in Christ. What's a prediction here is a call in John chapter 15, where Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is the pathway to peace. We abide in Christ in the shorter catechism. We are told that what is true faith? True faith is receiving and resting in Christ alone. When we trust in Jesus for the first time, we receive him into our heart. But we need to rest in him. That means we abide in his sovereignty. We trust his plan. We accept his people. We don't reject his people, but we embrace them because we are part of the body. And to abide is to pray regularly in the quietness or the loudness of our home. Yeah, we had some loud years in the suffering household. Yeah, you got to still pray. To abide is to hear from God regularly, reading the Bible regularly in the quietness or loudness of our home. To abide is to worship regularly, hearing the Bible preached and singing and praying and receiving the sacraments. It is to abide in Christ and wait upon him for the promises to be fulfilled in your life, resting in his resources rather than ours. We can count on his strength. We can count on it. And we can count on it even with the example that's given here in verses 5 and 6. Assyria attacked Judah in the time of Hezekiah. If you look back at 1 verse 1, this is a prophecy that came to the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this part applies to Hezekiah. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, and he surrounded Jerusalem and had it besieged. And the prophet Isaiah came to uh, Hezekiah and reassured him, don't surrender. God is going to rescue you. He will rescue Jerusalem from this wicked king. And so he did. For as we read in 2 Kings 19.35, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. 185,000. And so Sennacherib himself escaped, but then he was killed by his sons back in Nineveh. This is just a picture of the power of this ruler. He did that for his people in the Old Testament, and that same power is exercised now. Matthew Henry has a beautiful picture of what does it mean when it says, verse 5, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palace. It's, it's a horrific picture. And here's how Henry puts it. 
When the Assyrians invade, it represents the gates of hell fighting against the kingdom of Christ, threatening to bring down all before them. When the terrors of the law set themselves in array against a convinced soul, what that means is when the law is heard as being condemnatory, even though I am convinced in the atonement of Jesus Christ, yet the law comes against me and wants me to forget Christ, wants me to say once more that I am under the law and I've got to save myself. When we are convinced of Christ, the Assyrian coming into our land is like that law luring us back to justify ourselves. Henry goes on when he says, when the temptations of Satan assault the people of God. Yes, there are people tempted in our church family. We need to pray for them and ask God to bring them always back to Christ, who is the friend of sinners. And then also, Henry points out, the troubles of the world threaten to rob them of all their comforts. Yeah, in an earthly plane, we may feel like we're under attack and there's someone out there trying to rob us of all our comforts. Indeed, it's in this situation we need to run to this one who shall be peace. Trust the Lord and his providence, weaving the tapestry of your life as the sovereign God, he can be counted on to do it. Trust the Lord to give you a church family with whom you can live in peace and unity. And trust the Lord to stand as the risen Lord and give himself to you even at the Lord's table. Think of this nourishing. Think of how he feeds us at the table. As we by faith receive Christ spiritually so surely as he feeds us physically at this, his table. Come to Christ. Dark threads are as needful in the weaver's hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemns. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, bless this congregation. Give us peace. Bless all those associated with the congregation that they may have peace and not allow the terrors of the law to uh, deceitfully lead them away from Jesus when he is calling to them, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We trust your plan, even the dark threads. We confess, O oh Lord, our sin. We pray that your pattern being woven in our life will bring great glory to you at the last day. We pray it in